This episode of God's Favorites will contain about 30 seconds in the very beginning of very loud audio described as booms and bangs, seismic data from World War One. I. I just wanted to give a content warning for anyone who finds those kind of noises distressing. You can skip into the episode at around the 1 minute and 15 to 20 second mark just to give it enough time. Enjoy. What you have just heard was a recreation, an interpretation of sound in the 11th minute of the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month, an armistice would bring an end to the Great War. An exhibit at the Imperial War Museum would use seismic data, basically, same thing used to measure earthquakes, to give us an idea of what it would sound like when young boys who had been fighting each other could finally stop firing their weapons. Both sides had been using seismic data to determine where each other's guns were, to at least give a good estimate of it. But when mapped out, at the end, you see silence. But the scars of the Great War would traumatize an entire generation of young men. In 1918, the world had changed significantly. When we last left Dwight Eisenhower, World War I had ended without Ike seeing any battlefield action in Europe. But we must rewind for a moment to its fateful end. That war, at its front in the Balkans and across Europe, both Eastern and Western, had been the most brutal stuff of nightmares. War has always been hell, but the Great War, as it was then known, had left an entire generation traumatized and sick. New innovations had devised new ways to torture your fellow human beings. And governments threw their soldiers one after another in a way the world had never seen. An entire generation of men were just wiped out. On June 28, 1919, five years to the date of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand by a Serbian nationalist, the terms and conditions for surrender were laid out. The United States had become involved in the war in 1917, and a significant portion of the Treaty of Versailles, so-called for the location of the signing, was President Wilson's 14 points. At home, many Americans balked at the formation of the League of Nations. The U.S. is a sovereign nation, right? And Hatton alliances started this whole mess anyway. A Germany, who had entered the conflict due to its alliance with Austria-Hungary, paid the price for its involvement due to the size and power of its military. Germany was a war machine even if they had not been the ones who had started the conflict. The German government agreed to sign the treaty, but it was an unpopular move in Germany. In terms of military, the treaty rendered them practically powerless, reducing the size of their forces as well as ordering restitution that would bankrupt the country. 
Germans who had been dragged into the war felt betrayed by their government. Article 231 in the treaty put the blame at their feet, along with their allies. And this caused rage. Their countrymen had been thrown into the mud alongside the sons of the allied countries. Had their children been less valuable? There is an anger brewing that across the span of the next decade will boil to a breaking point. Fascism will rise out of the ashes. And now the Allies will face a hard truth that some have already acknowledged during the peace negotiation. The truth that there was another war brewing inside a treaty. This is God's favorites. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Episode 2. Tragedy had been raging across the world, but it would soon hit the Eisenhowers. It was Christmas in 1920 when their young son, Dow Dwight, or Icky, developed a serious fever. He became incredibly weak. He was rushed to the hospital. According to Carlos Desta's Eisenhower biography, Icky's cheerful countenance made the staff slightly less concerned with the fever than they probably ought to have been, but... It worsened, and finally their physician told them the horrible truth that Icky had contracted scarlet fever, and it would either kill him or he would survive. Two alternatives. Unfortunately, the child was too weak, and on January 2nd, 1921, in the early morning hours, Icky died at the age of three years old. The family was devastated. Icky had been their only son at the time, and it was a period of mourning. Those who worked alongside Eisenhower in the U.S. Tank Corps came and provided an honor guard for his tiny casket. There isn't a lot else documented to say on the matter. Eisenhower rarely spoke of the death of his son, but eventually confided to a friend that it was almost the end of him. He had adored his son, and he tried to remain stoic, but inside, he was teetering on the verge of a breakdown. They would have another child, John the following year. 1921 proved a continually rough year for Eisenhower. He was also nearly court-martialed on what was classified as an alleged defrauding of the United States Army related to claiming costs on the care of his dependents, Mamie and Icky. Eisenhower was charged with this after it was discovered that he had claimed an allowance for his home at Camp Meade for Mamie and Icky when it was discovered that Icky had been in the care of an aunt in Iowa for six months. Given the circumstances of Icky's tragic end, it seemed unusually cruel for prosecution of a man claiming heating expenses of a home with a child inside, and it didn't stop the U.S. government. A case was levied against Eisenhower still in mourning for his son, even though he had self-reported the discrepancy when he realized that he would not have been allowed to claim Mickey if he wasn't at the base. The case would continue. It was a violation of the rules, said Washington. It would be Brigadier General Eli Helmick who wanted Eisenhower court-martialed, but leadership at Camp Meade argued for a verbal reprimand and for Eisenhower instead to repay the money all $250.67 of it. Helmick was going to greenlight the court-martial, but instead there would be a moment of relief. A sort of deus ex machina moment. 
if you will, in the form of a new friend, Brigadier General Fox Connor. Connor would order Eisenhower to come to Panama to be his executive officer. The incident involving the reprimand would be closed. Eisenhower would pay for the accounting error on his behalf, and Helmick was left to grumble. 1919 had brought the Treaty of Versailles, but it also brought two of the most important men that Ike would ever meet into his life. Eisenhower met General George S. Patton in the autumn of 1919, and the two could not have been more different. Patton was described as a man with a scowl, but he was legendary from his service during the Great War. The overachieving Patton was a strange friend for a boy who had basically clawed his way out of West Point like Eisenhower had, but despite the difference in personalities, the two bonded like schoolboys over their love of tanks. Their service in the tank corps and their knowledge would provide both with a career for the next several decades. It would also infinitely tie their legacies together. It was one night later that year, in 1919, that Eisenhower would be invited to the Pattons for dinner. And there he would meet Brigadier General Fox Connor, the man who would save Eisenhower from a court-martial in 1921. Connor was a strategist and the best, and he and Patton had both noticed concerning trends following the end of the Great War. Militarization was down significantly in the United States. America wanted to remain isolated and peaceful, It took a boat and a telegram to drag America kicking and screaming into that European conflict. But both Patton and Connor knew that Germany still posed a significant risk to Europe as it remained volatile. In October of 1919, Patton wrote a letter to his sister expressing his concerns over the matter. The United States in general and the army, in particular, is in a hell of a mess, and there seems to be no end to it. We disregard the lessons of history, the red fate of Carthage, the Rome of shame under the Praetorian Guard, and we go on regardless of the vital necessity of trained patriotism, hiring an army. Even the most enlightened of our politicians are blind and mad with self-delusion. They believe what they wish may occur, not what history teaches will happen. By June of 1920, the United States Army had only 130,000 men. And tempers in Germany continue to rise. In the United States, however, the Roaring Twenties would be a time of peace and economic prosperity until the market crash of 29, but that is another podcast for another time. The rest of the 20s would also present Major Eisenhower an opportunity for growth and education. Over the next two decades, he would learn from a number of talented generals, including, of course, Patton and Connor, but also John Pershing, Douglas MacArthur, and George Marshall. The road to general in the Army is a long one, and Eisenhower would hold on to the rank of major for 16 years. His assignments over the next 20 years would help shape his worldview and give him varied examples of leadership. He served in the Panama Canal Zone until 1924 under General Connor, who tutored him in military history. He referred to Connor as one of the most capable, efficient, and loyal leaders he had ever met. And it was, of course, Connor who recommended him to the command in General Staff College in Kansas, a helpful stepping stone to promotion. 
After a far from Gold Star graduation at West Point, the now older and apparently more focused Dwight Eisenhower would graduate first in a class of 245. For Americans and others, the world grew increasingly further away from the memory of World War I. In the late 20s, things would slow down a little bit for the military and for Major Eisenhower. In the late 20s, he would graduate from the War College and be assigned to the American Battle Monuments Commission, directed by General Pershing. With the help of his brother Milton Eisenhower, a journalist working in the United States Agriculture Department, they would produce a guide to American battlefields in Europe. Ike would spend a year in France, where today the commission maintains 12 locations with cemeteries and monuments from World War I and World War II. On July 28, 1932, Dwight Eisenhower would find himself in the middle of a political and military firestorm. It would put him at odds with his new boss, General Douglas MacArthur. Aside as MacArthur's aide in February, they would both be called upon by the administration of President Herbert Hoover to clear the nation's capital of thousands of World War I veterans camped in Washington, D.C. They were called the Bonus Army. And the Bonus Army was a byproduct of the Great Depression. In 1932, 32,000 businesses failed in the United States. Unemployment reached almost 25%. One family out of four would find they had no one earning an income. It is estimated that two million people began to move around the country in search of work, often setting up makeshift communities. These shanty towns began to be called Hoovervilles, named after the president who many blamed for the economic conditions. And many former veterans of the Great War were out of work and began to call upon the government to pay the bonus they had been promised early. Estimates of up to 17,000 veterans and their wives and children descended on Washington, D.C. Starting in May, they set up their own Hooverville in D.C. and the neighborhood of Anacostia. At first, President Hoover attempted to ignore the veterans in hopes that they would move on. And in June, Congress defeated a bill that called for immediate bonus payments, and some defeated went home. But many stayed. On July 28th, the veterans voted to stay and began to march in demonstration. At the direction of Attorney General Williams Mitchell, police attempted to remove the veterans. Police met with resistance, shots were fired, and two veterans were wounded, later dying. President Hoover would order his Army Chief of Staff General MacArthur to clear the area. His aide, Eisenhower, would recommend that the general not lead the charge into the city, but MacArthur would only ignore Ike's suggestion, as he often did to Eisenhower. He ordered Eisenhower to join on the front line. 500 infantry with bayonets fixed, 500 cavalry, 800 policemen, and six tanks, under the direction of General George Patton, descended on the city, effectively turning on men they had once fought alongside. They set fire to Hooverville there, burning the shacks to the ground. Newspapers and theater newsreels would show images of veterans and their families fleeing in the haze of tear gas clouds. Soldiers stood around with bayonets fixed, cavalry-wielding swords. The nation watched in disbelief, and when there is chaos, there is always somebody in the background looking for an opportunity. Democratic nominee for president Franklin Roosevelt 
watched this unfold, and even though he himself had been opposed to immediate payment of the bonus, told an advisor, well, <laughs> this will elect me. Roosevelt would win in a landslide. Meanwhile, Dwight Eisenhower could not believe the mess he was now in, and MacArthur remained stubborn, insistent on leading the charge, as he had been ordered to do, but probably to a further extreme that he needed. Eisenhower himself and other eyewitnesses insisted that the Secretary of War, speaking for the president, had sent messages forbidding any troops to cross the bridge into the main camps in Anacostia. Eisenhower says MacArthur told him he was too busy and did not want either himself or his staff bothered by people coming down and pretending to bring orders. Hoover's demands went ignored. MacArthur would call a news conference, claiming that had they not taken action for another 24 hours, it would have actually caused a real battle. It was just one more incident on a list of incidents that had grown far too long under President Hoover. To say that Eisenhower did not like MacArthur is an understatement. A really big understatement. Nevertheless, he would still serve the remainder of the 1930s under MacArthur, preparing the Filipino army for independence. If the Bonus Army, who was the first time he disagreed with MacArthur, it was certainly not the last. Eisenhower disliked MacArthur for what he thought was vanity, theatrics, and perceived irrational behavior. Now, he would willingly admit that MacArthur was smart, decisive, and brilliant, and that working under him was frustrating, but also an invaluable learning experience. But later in life, Ike would reflect on the bonus army with a historian. When historian Stephen Ambrose brought the subject up to Ike, Ike, referring to MacArthur, would say, I told that dumb son of a bitch he had no business going down there. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we talk about the people who were God's favorites, or at least thought they were. Sources for today's episode include Eisenhower, A Soldier's Life by Carlos Destas, Patton, Blood, Guts, and Prayer by Michael Keane, the website for Eisenhower's National Historic Site, Smithsonian's magazine article Marching on History by Paul Dixon and Thomas B. Allen, and for information on the Treaty of Versailles, the wonderful folks at history.com. Thank you so much to everyone who donates to our Patreon. You can find us on there under God's Favorites, a history podcast. Money from our Patreon account goes to expenses like books, other websites or sources that we need to pay subscriptions for behind paywalls, music licensing, and of course, streaming fees. Join in the conversation on Facebook at God's Favorites, a history podcast. We have a lot of fun. And over at my TikTok account at Melissa Fairlady. And for those who have asked, my favorite movie is My Fair Lady, hence the handle. We want to give you a content warning for next time because Ike is going to encounter some really, really serious and dark stuff over in Europe during World War II. But we still hope you'll turn up in two weeks as Ike heads to Europe to find triumph and horror unlike any he had ever seen. See you next time, friends.